Thank you, Larry. Morning, everybody. It's good to be here on this first Sunday of Advent with all of you. Uh, before we start, Joel kind of talked a little bit about it. I wanted to tell you how proud I was of our puppet team. This is what they looked like last night performing for uh, probably a couple hundred people. And it, uh, they did just such a great job. They represented us so well. They represented the Lord so well. Puppet team, raise your hands. We want to thank you again. Great job. Very good. Very good. At Christmas time, we often begin to think about peace, don't we? We think of the Prince of Peace. We think about peace or the lack thereof in our world. For there to be peace, someone has to win the war. Think about this. Any lasting peace has seldom happened in history unless one side was beaten and overcome and whipped. Peace comes when one side overwhelms another side, and the losing side in the war unconditionally surrenders. Of course, what we see more often in history is that there's a temporary peace, a peace that's not maybe total without unconditional surrender. We see that today in the Middle East, don't we? Where they essentially have a long-term ceasefire, but never a complete end to war. And then there's weeks, months, often years, until the hostilities or outright war begin again. But it's not a peace. It's just kind of a tension going on there. Without unconditional surrender, the best you can hope for is a partial or temporary peace. In this Advent season, when we begin to think about the Prince of Peace, it's important for us to consider what this peace is. He's the Prince of Peace. What kind of peace are we talking about and how we attain this peace? I would submit to you today that the way we attain the peace that the Prince of Peace brings is by unconditional surrender to him. Peace comes when the winning side imposes its will on the losing side or the losing side acknowledges the superiority of the winning side. Without that, there's no true peace. It's only brief or temporary, as we noted, a cessation of hostilities. Without unconditional surrender, a temporary peace is usually followed by an outbreak of war once more, at least eventually. The losing side must say, we give up. We don't want any more war. The angels announced on the night of Jesus' birth, we read this in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. What was the peace that the angels announced on that first Christmas night? The prophet Isaiah predicted that Jesus would be the prince of peace. Writing of Jesus, Isaiah proclaimed in Isaiah chapter 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. How can that be? We know that since Jesus was born, since that night the angels announced the arrival, the birth of the Prince of Peace, there have been many wars, haven't there? Does that make Isaiah a false prophet? In the 1900s alone, some of the most bloody conflicts man has ever seen were fought. There's a society in London called the Society of International Law, 
And it uh, writes that during the last 4,000 years, there have only been 268 years of peace in spite of good peace treaties. In the last three centuries, there have been 286 wars on the continent of Europe alone. The angel's announcement and Isaiah's prophecy meant that lasting peace will come to the hearts of those who receive his grace and his mercy, his favor, by unconditionally surrendering to Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Peace is for those who, by grace, through faith, become children of God. Those who don't accept God's peace terms remain at war with him, and their own lives remain in a state of disorder and strife. Well, you might think, gee, Bill, you're overstating the case just a little bit, that those who are apart from Christ are at war with him. But listen to how the Apostle Paul explains it in Romans chapter 5. Beginning with verse 9, we read, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So verse 10 says that we, that means you and I, were enemies of God, deserving of his wrath before we were justified by Jesus' blood. It takes enemies to fight a war, doesn't it? When we were enemies, what that means, according to one commentary, is the work of salvation was undertaken while we were enemies. From being enemies, we were changed to friends by that work. Thus, it was commenced by God. Its foundation was laid while we were still hostile to it. It evinced, therefore, a determined purpose on the part of God to perform it. And he has thus given a pledge that it shall be perfected. Another commentary tells us the word enemies is applied to men not only as descriptive of their moral character, but also of the relation in which they stand to God as the objects of his displeasure. There is not only a wicked opposition of the sinner to God, but a holy opposition of God to the sinner. So I really do believe that the war and surrender analogy here is quite appropriate. Isaiah was predicting that before Jesus' birth, and the angels were announcing on the night of his birth that God was winning the war against sin and death. He was setting into motion those events that would lead to total victory. And that victory was inevitable. The war wasn't against nations. It wasn't against people per se. The war was for our redemption and reconciliation, and it was against sin and death. And as the stronger force in this war, God in his mercy was about to impose his solution for the conflict. Now, the sad part of all this is that even though God was at war against sin, and on that first Christmas night, he gave us the opening salvo of his peace terms, we humans picked the loser in this war. We were on the enemy side of this conflict we joined forces with the losing side. It's called, theologians call it, the fall. We teamed with God's enemy, Satan, and surrendered to our sin nature. I don't think it's taking this analogy too far to say that we, that is humanity, we as individuals, were 
and in some ways and with many individuals still are at war with God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. We first chose sides in the Garden of Eden. Though the war is over, though God's peace terms have been declared and they have been announced to us throughout the centuries, the peace treaty has been signed, meaning millions have agreed to God's terms for peace. Still, there are many who don't know that the war is over. After World War II was over and Japan and Germany surrendered, you know, there were still thousands of Japanese soldiers and civilians holed up in caves on many Pacific islands. They literally kept fighting for years a war that was already over. Peace had been declared. The war had been won. There are many who may not know that the war is over. There are many who may know that the war is over, but they don't accept God's terms. And there are others still who have signed the treaty accepting his terms of peace, but they renege on the terms and still fight for themselves those mop-up skirmishes in this cosmic battle that's already been won. Webster's defines peace with several definitions, but here are a couple that we most commonly think of. We think of peace as the freedom from war or civil strife, an agreement to end a war. And the other definition that we think of is actually way down on the list of definitions. It's the fifth meaning, in fact, in Webster's Dictionary of Peace. It's an undisturbed state of mind. Now, the biblical way to think about these definitions and to recall them is this. The absence of war is peace with God. The undisturbed state of mind is the peace of God. That's talked about, uh, the, the peace with God is talked about in Romans 5.1. And we read there, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This passage describes the fact of peace with God. In other words, the war is over. Sin has been defeated. It's a fact. Whether we recognize it or not, it's a fact. It's a done deal. Whether we unconditionally surrender or not, it's a done deal. In Scripture, peace means a relationship without battles, without strife between two persons or groups, much more often than it means individual tranquility or peace of mind, even though that's how we tend to think of peace maybe most often. So what the Apostle Paul means here is that because of what God started on this first Christmas night, when the angels declared peace on earth, the believer in Christ is on God's side. By the way, the NIV version of this verse, on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests, is a better translation than some of the other versions which say goodwill towards men. That's because God's peace is not given to those who have goodwill, but to those who are recipients of God's favor or God's goodwill, to stick with our theme this morning. Those who have unconditionally surrendered to him, and thus, because of that, they have God's favor resting on them. That reminds me of a funny movie with Peter Sellers. Some of you may have seen this movie. It's an old movie. It was a 1959 movie. Anybody ever see this? The Mouse That Roared? Some of you have seen that. It was about a little European monarchy, and they were in dire financial straits. And someone in this government noticed 
that whenever the U.S. fights and wins a war against a nation, once peace has been declared, the U.S. will typically invest millions or even billions of dollars to rebuild the nation they just defeated, sometimes making things better than they were before. So this little country decided this is how we're going to get out of our financial problems. We're going to declare war against the United States, and they, we're, we know we're going to be quickly defeated, and then we're going to get our economy fixed. So they took their little motorboats across the ocean. They didn't really have much of an army, and they tried to invade the U.S., and they tried to quickly surrender. But the problem was nobody noticed. Nobody noticed that this little nation had invaded. And so that's kind of the way the movie goes. So how does that apply here? You could say that when a generally benevolent nation utterly defeats a foe in war, after the war, in a sense, at least in the case of the U.S., for example, in World War II with Germany and Japan, that nation's favor rests on that defeated nation. One commentator on Luke indicates that the various renderings in the existing translations all fall short. The King James' goodwill toward men, the revised standard among men with whom he is well pleased, and some modern versions read, among men of goodwill. This commentator feels that a most accurate rendering would be on earth peace among men who are the objects of his pleasure. Isn't that a great way to think about it? That's us. We're the objects of his pleasure. And that idea reflects the fact that we cannot earn his favor or his grace. It's a product of God's mercy toward us. And he bought peace for us by totally defeating the enemy of our souls. What we must do is unconditionally surrender to him. If you hear and remember nothing else of all the things that are said this morning, remember this, all peace flows from a relationship with the Prince of Peace. Any kind of peace you can think of is the result of the benefit of a right relationship with the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. There are essentially two kinds of peace revealed in Scripture. We've talked about this just a little bit already. Let's expand on it just a touch. There's experiential peace. We read about that in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. That's the day-by-day experience of a believer. This is inner peace, which we can forfeit or lose when we're out of right relationship or when we again put conditions on our surrender. This is the peace of God. This is what we all kind of want, isn't it? And then we see the judicial, and we looked at this a moment ago, Romans 5.1. That's the fact that the war with God is over. This is peace with God. It's made possible by the prince of peace. Anybody here students of bumper sticker theology or church sign theology? You see things like that sometimes? Well, most of it's rather suspect, but occasionally you'll see something that makes biblical sense, and there's some that actually are pretty solid theology, and one of those relates to our message this morning. You may have seen this one, no Jesus, N-O, no peace, right? And then no Jesus, K-N-O-W, peace. No Jesus, no peace. Of course, there are some churches who still, they don't quite get it. They seem to get it wrong. I found these two, two church signs. I'm not sure that's what they really wanted to say. Take a look at those. Anyway, they kind of messed things up a little bit, didn't they? Now here's, here's another. Uh, this is totally unrelated to the message, but it was just way too good to pass up. Uh, another example of a church sign failure. 
<laughs> Can you read it? It says, we love hurting people. You get, you can take that both ways. I mean, I think we, we, that's true of TCF. Don't we love to have people in our midst that we can minister to? Anyway, it's really bad if you have to explain it. We cannot know real peace even as a subjective feeling unless we know the Prince of Peace as an objective reality, unless we accept his forgiveness purchased for us and then live by his word in right relationship with Jesus. That is, we cannot have the peace with God or the peace of God without unconditional surrender to his terms of peace. Now, in our world, people are very much concerned about one kind of peace, that experiential inner peace. That's what people strive for in all kinds of ways, don't they? Isn't that really the root of a lot of drug and alcohol issues? Is people are looking for peace and they're trying to find peace in that way. Of course, we're also concerned about the peace, meaning the absence of war. But think of this. Of the two kinds of peace we're thinking about this morning, we're thinking about experiential peace for the Christian, the peace of God, and then the judicial peace, and that's for the believer. Again, this is peace with God. Think about this. You can have number two without having number one, but you cannot have number one without having number two. The fact of peace with God, by the shed blood of Jesus, is the only means to genuine, lasting, transcendent peace, as described so well in many passages of Scripture. A writer named Adam Clark said, if there is not peace with God, then there can be no peace in the soul or peace of mind. Man was made to worship his creator, and when he rejects his creator and goes his way, then he also rejects peace. And his path is one of turmoil from within that affects everything without. Now, peace is a hard thing to keep, isn't it? Think about, again, using the war analogy. That's why we have armed soldiers with deadly weapons in any place that there has been war and there's now some semblance of peace. In many places, they're even called peacekeepers, right? You've seen the UN troops with their blue helmets. Those are the peacekeepers. But the idea is that they have to enforce the peace that's already been legally declared. I believe the Bible has something to say about this, too. We read in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, again, about that experiential peace. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The first verse here, verse 6, essentially says, surrender, when it says present your request to God, surrender your requests to God. Surrender those things about which you are anxious to God. Jerry Bridges said, prayer is the tangible expression of our dependence on God. And dependence, think about it, dependence means we surrender. We say, in effect, I give up. I can't do it. I need God. I need the Lord. The second verse here relates to the idea of peacekeepers enforcing the peace that's already been won and has been legally declared. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Our hearts and minds are vulnerable, aren't they? Even though peace has been declared, even when the peace treaty has been signed, This passage recognizes that even when God gives us peace, 
this peace is usually given in the midst of turmoil. And someone needs to maintain the peace. So here, it tells us that the Prince of Peace, Christ Jesus, not only imposes his unconditional surrender peace terms, but he maintains the peace for us. For the follower of Christ, Jesus is our peace. We even read that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, where it says, For he himself, speaking of Jesus, he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Every child of God has peace with God through justification by faith, as we read in Romans 5.1. But the peace of or from God relates to that inner tranquility of a believer's close walk with God. This peace of God transcends all understanding, as it tells us in Philippians. That means it's beyond our ability to fully understand. In other words, we have all this turmoil going on all around us, and we think, how can I possibly sense peace? But that's the peace of God. You can have that. Many of us have experienced that many times in our lives when things were miserable, but the peace of God, we were able to rest in that. That means it's beyond our ability to comprehend, and it guards believers. Guard translates a military term, which means to protect or garrison by guarding, like soldiers that are assigned to watch over a certain area. God's peace garrisons the hearts and minds, that is, the emotions and thoughts of God's children. That's us. Isn't that a wonderful picture of God's love for us? Not only does he establish peace, not only does he pay the price for peace, but he guards what he has gained for us. Thinking about this topic, another idea occurred to me. You know, through the years, I've thought a lot about World War II. When I was growing up, my parents had this great Time Life book about World War II. And I also just recently read a book that my parents had that I hadn't ever read when I was younger, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. You know, there's so much instructive about humanity and about human nature in studying this particular war. I'm sure that's true of all wars, but especially World War II. For example, to think about some of these events that led up to this second what they called war to end all wars. There was a prime minister of Great Britain. His name was Neville Chamberlain. He was the prime minister before Winston Churchill, and he became prime minister in 1937. And about that time, Adolf Hitler was already well on his way to building his war machine. Yet Chamberlain adopted a policy of appeasement. Now, appease means to quiet, especially by giving in to the demands of. When Hitler demanded the right to expand his empire, Chamberlain made many concessions, which led directly to Hitler's takeover of Austria, Czechoslovakia, and other parts of Europe before World War II even began. So Germany increased its military strength and expanded its borders, and despite, and many would argue that because of Chamberlain's appeasement of Hitler, war came anyway in September 1939. You could make a case that appeasement of evil, like Hitler, can be like appeasement towards sin in our lives. Let's think about that for a second. Neither one ever brings true, lasting peace. Let's think again of the definition of appeasement. To quiet, especially by giving in to the demands of. That's the definition of appeasement. 
when sin bangs at our door, tempts us with its lies, we cannot appease sin and find lasting peace. God said to Cain before he killed his brother Abel, Genesis 4-7, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. So to fit in with our theme of unconditional surrender here this morning, what was right for Cain, the way for him to master sin was to unconditionally surrender to God. Appeasing sin, letting it in the door, only leads to war again. You'll always fight that sin if you keep letting it in the door. And why do we need to go to war again? Jesus has won the peace. Why would we need to go to war again? What we need to do is accept his gift of peace by our unconditional surrender to him. Another important thing to remember is that there's always a cost to peace. To win World War II, literally millions of men had to die. Peace is always bought with a price, and peace is always won with a sacrifice. When there's a war, men have to leave the comforts of their homes, often to suffer and die. They intentionally put themselves in harm's way. It's the price of peace. And for those left behind on the home front, whether we literally fight or not, we get to enjoy the benefits of that hard-won peace, the peace that required the death and sacrifice of other people. Announcing the birth of Jesus on that first Christmas night, we're reminded that Jesus, too, had to leave his home, his throne room. He needed to leave the comforts, if you will, of heaven to fight on the earthly battlefield against sin. Our peace with God was a hard-won peace. It took blood and it took death to win. But it was an absolute victory over the enemy. Once for all time, unlike the peace that we have in our world affairs. But his peace terms are absolute too. God's peace terms are absolute too. Unconditional surrender. God's peace terms are this. We must acknowledge that we are hopelessly sinful and broken. And we must receive the forgiveness that's offered only through Jesus Christ. And that means, again, unconditional surrender to him. Unconditional surrender to his way of bringing peace to us. Unconditional surrender to the one who said, I am the way. Unconditional surrender to the prince of peace. What this dependence on God brings is independence for us. It brings freedom and it brings peace. We read in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Here the word stayed means to lay, lean, or rest upon. To trust in someone means that you rely on them. Complete trust, think about this, complete trust is to unconditionally surrender your will. Peace means that the fighting is over, the killing has stopped, and the soldiers have put down their guns. More than that, true peace also means the restoration of a broken relationship. Peace means that a relationship that was once filled with enmity and strife and war is now filled with joy. Peace is a very positive change in a relationship, isn't it, between two people who were once enemies. 
Colossians 1.20 says that Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. Since the angels announced peace on that first Christmas night, we can consider this a reminder that Jesus was born for the express purpose of dying. If Jesus made peace, past tense, he made peace when he died on the cross, then all that's left to us is to accept by faith the peace that he has already made. The truth is, we don't, we cannot on our own make peace with God. He made peace for us and with us when Jesus died at Calvary. All we can do, what we must do, is unconditionally surrender to him. I want to pray for you for peace this morning. Some of you here this morning may need peace with God. Some of you may have never unconditionally surrendered to his peace terms. You're still fighting the war on your own terms. And you're tired of the cost of this war. You can surrender to him this morning. Others here have surrendered, but there are conditions to your surrender. You're holding some things back. You're hanging on to something. Maybe you're hanging on to some sin. Maybe you're hanging on to some problem. You're not willing to unconditionally surrender things that you haven't surrendered to him. And then there's still others who have surrendered. You surrendered a long time ago. But you need those peacekeeping soldiers to guard your heart and your mind because the turmoil that you know on a regular basis sometimes feels worse than any war could possibly be. You can pray this morning, and you can unconditionally surrender your anxious thoughts. You can unconditionally surrender your sin, your needs, your desires, your future to him. We can all unconditionally surrender to the Prince of Peace. So as I begin to pray here this morning, if you fit into any of those categories, I'd like you to stand as we pray together, and let's pray for the Prince of Peace to touch our hearts. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the fact of peace with God, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are grateful for that reality, Lord God, and we know that that is the foundation for any kind of peace that we can hope for or even expect. So, Father, I pray for those here who have never unconditionally surrendered to the peace terms that Jesus Christ gave us, the Prince of Peace gave us. I pray, Father, that you would invade their hearts, and, Father, that they would truly unconditionally surrender to you, to give you their lives. I pray for those, Heavenly Father, who have at times past unconditionally surrendered to you, but now there's more conditions, and now there's things they're holding back, there's sins, there's problems that they haven't given to you, haven't surrendered to you. Father, may they this morning be able to truly surrender those things to you, to give those things to you, to trust you, Heavenly Father. And Lord, we know that there are many of us here this morning who need that inner peace, that experiential peace, that peace with God that transcends all understanding. And we trust this morning, Father, that you will indeed guard the peace that you've already won, that you will, Father, guard our hearts and our minds as we trust in Christ Jesus, as we declare our dependence on you and our unconditional surrender to you. We're grateful for this season, Lord God, in which we can celebrate the Prince of Peace, the one who brought peace to this world, the one who brought the peace 
with God to this world, the one who brings the peace of God to this world. Help us to rest in this peace, Father God. May your Holy Spirit work deeply in each of our hearts so that we would daily, unconditionally surrender to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.